Acheron, The Demon King, by Morgan Huxley. Find more great stories at audioiron.com. Chapter 12 Two days before Mary was scheduled to perform the second ritual, she realized there was going to be a problem. It took her until the day of departure to confess her plight. Stuart knocked on the door in the late afternoon, his manner betraying the first true agitation she had ever seen him show. She was dressed, once again, in comfortable clothes. Now that she understood, or thought she understood, the order of events, she knew that she could wear what she wanted on the way to the underground cathedral. Can you come in for a moment? she asked. It's important that we leave soon, he said as he looked her up and down. Actually, it's important that we leave now. I can't do the invocation, she said. Not tonight. Of course you can, he said. Your delivery is perfect. He looked at his watch, then at her. His face was impassive but his tone was firm. We need to go. What will I be wearing tonight? she asked. He stared at her. Nothing of course. Just like last time. I don't want to be nude, she managed. I thought we were past this. Since everyone is over the age of fifteen and you aren't doing a striptease. What's the problem? I can't. Tell me why. His voice was terse. She forced herself to say the words she had rehearsed. My cycle will start in the next few hours. Stuart rolled his eyes, took her by the arm picked up her bag, and drew her outside. Setting the bag down he closed the door, locked it, then he picked up the bag again and led her down the cobbled walk. Did you really just waste ten minutes telling me you menstruate? He asked as he led her to the car. You don't understand, she said. Do you see the moon? He asked as they crunched along. It's full. Many women menstruate within the lunar cycle, and many are fertile at the new moon. This ritual accounts for that. I don't understand, she said. Mary, please trust me. It won't be a problem. He opened the door, seated her beside James, then closed the door. Excited? James asked. Not at all, she replied. Stuart stepped into the car, closed the door. Drive quickly, he said to Ahmed. James tapped Mary on the arm. Let's put you into a light trance and practice what you've learned, he said. We have time and there's no reason not to. Mary sighed. She held out her hand for the plastic cup. He said. Let's just do this. He took her hand and began manipulating the bones and tendons again, searching for pressure points. She felt tension leave her neck and back, slipping out of her through some kind of invisible drain he had just created. He found another pressure point and she felt a moment's discomfort, and then she felt very calm. Better? he asked. She nodded. She let her head fall back against the seat of the car. Why don't you take a nap? James asked. It's a long drive. Mary was asleep before he finished asking the question. She woke an indefinable time later. The sky was dark and the car was passing through a formidable black gate emblazoned with a giantess inside a circle. Looking through the front window she saw the car was following a black asphalt road through a thick wood. Where are we? She asked. Almost there, said Ahmed. Moments later the car emerged from the wood and approached an immense stone structure. It was three stories tall, featured long windows and parapets, and its massive front door was up a shallow set of round steps. Is this a church? She asked in astonishment. 
It used to be an abbey, said Stuart as the car drove past the front door and down into a garage which rested under a walled garden. It's been in my family since the Tudor period. Your family owns a church? She asked, feeling sluggish. I didn't know you could do that. But by then the car had stopped and the men were stepping out. James came around to Mary's side of the car to open the door and help her get out. Stuart ignored her completely, walking up the garage steps into the house as if he were late to an important meeting. Please forgive Stuart, said James. We are running late and he has to prepare. Mary nodded. One thing they had managed to impress on her was that this was a very important, very time-sensitive, event. Ahmed and James led her through the garage entrance, up the steps into the big reception room, then up the stairs to the second floor. Ahmed opened the door to the bathroom and said, Just like last time, he said. No changes at all. As she undressed she watched Ahmed drop the aromatic oils into the water again, saw him drop a fresh towel for her near the edge of a bath, then he turned to her. We'll join you in a moment. Mary submerged herself in the water, moved to the edge of the bath to towel her eyes dry, then mounted the stairs to get out. She was wrapped in her towel when Ahmed returned. Without a word he pulled off his robe, walked to the bath naked and stepped in. Drenched from head to foot, he emerged a moment later, padding to the cupboard to get a towel. James appeared seconds later to follow the same procedure. She watched them both put their robes on and noted there was none of the friendly banter she remembered from last time. James opened his black bag and handed her a plastic cup a moment later. She held it in her hand and found herself wondering what she was doing. All this fuss for a ritual to draw down the moon? Did that make sense? Surely something more was going on. Why is everyone so tense? She asked. We've waited years to perform this ritual, said Ahmed. This is the only night it can be performed, and if you don't execute it correctly, we will have to wait many more years, perhaps a lifetime, before we can try again. So, if you could just drink that, said James with a friendly smile, we would all feel more comfortable. We need to start the rite very soon. Still Mary hesitated. Her words to Stuart about selling her soul to the devil came back to her. Was she really entirely sanguine about serving an entirely unknown purpose? They all stood for a moment in silence, then James took a step back, and Ahmed also moved away. They seemed to understand that Mary felt intimidated by the speed with which things were proceeding. James spoke to her over his shoulder, You've come this far, he said. If we had wanted to hurt you there has been ample opportunity. I know, she said. You'll be aware of everything. The ritual doesn't work if you aren't, he added. And we really must proceed. Time is of the essence. With a sigh Mary swallowed the mixture in the little cup all at once. She felt its now familiar warmth slide down her throat and, seconds later, had the sense the world was receding. As if she were watching herself in a movie she saw her skin flush with a rosy glow. She saw James relax and felt Ahmed take her arm. Thank you, Mary, said James. Ahmed led her out of the Roman bath and down the hall to the metal-studded door. James unlocked the door and Ahmed stepped with her into darkness. Even without a hood over her head she still had to let the men guide her down the long staircase because there was no light at all on the stairs. Apparently they didn't need any help navigating its endless twists and turns. At one point she found herself standing alone as they unlocked and opened an invisible metal gate. She moved forward on her own to go through it only to be recaptured a moment later. Go down that corridor and you'll find yourself in a rather crowded crypt, he said. Let us lead you. 
Eventually she realized they were traversing through the underground cathedral, though she could see nothing at all. She recognized the feel of tile beneath her bare feet, the vast echoes every step triggered, and the bitter cold. To her surprise they walked her to the far side of the sanctuary into a much smaller space. Belatedly she realized it was a tunnel. The walls were close enough to touch, the air was wet and warm, and it became hotter and more humid with every step they took. Then, as she had dreamed, the tunnel opened into a grotto with a glittering ceiling. Ahead there was a luminous pool in which she could see stars reflected. She continued forward until she could look up at the night sky. Belatedly she realized Ahmed and James were no longer with her. She started to sing, hearing her voice echo in the chamber, the melody haunting and filled with yearning. How right it was to be here, to be in this place, singing for the moon, and begging it to come and fill her. All women were servants of the moon, slaves to its dance, tied to the earth, and fertile as the sea. The song coiled around her and she thought she heard the echo of other women who had sung for the moon here. This was a place of worship, she knew. A place of feminine magic and miracles. As she stared up into the sky, she saw a sliver of silver cut across the opening far overhead. The moon's rays fell down the narrow canal to kiss the water at her feet. She dropped to her knees and her voice grew in strength, in urgency, as the moon slid across the sky. She raised her hands to cup the water and she offered it up to the heavens. She arched her back. The goddess accepted her invitation. Silver strands of light wove their way down the long channel, twisting and turning as if it were a living thing. It slid down her arms like rain, roamed over her breasts, pulled in the water around her and rose into her womb to fill her. At that holy moment she felt something cold and hard bite into her arm. Something inside her exploded with rage at the affront. Who would dare touch her as she communed with her daughter? She looked at the thing on her arm, felt how it burned through her skin into her bones. It reached down, down, down to the very bowels of the earth. It bound her fast to the very heart of the planet. She spun around and saw a man standing in the shadows at the edge of the pool. Her fury hurled him back, crushing him hard into the stone behind him. She strode through the water toward the human, determined to rip him limb from limb, to watch his blood stain the water like ink. He spoke and she froze. She watched as he got to his feet. Furious, impotent, she studied him. He spoke again, approaching her cautiously. She raised her hand, determined to kill him if he dared touch her again. He knelt on one knee in the water his head lowered like a dutiful son. She knew he was her brother's servant and she could not strike him dead. Furious, but impotent, she turned her back on him and returned to the center of the pool. She looked up, toward home, and saw her silver lunar chariot was gone while she remained chained to this dark world. Mary woke in a darkened room to find one man touching her arm and another shining a bright light in her eyes. With a wave he sent them both scurrying. As she sat up they both took a knee heads down. She looked around, taking in a four-poster bed covered in a thick white duvet, a low fire in a marble fireplace, and a man sitting in an armchair watching her. Her mouth spat words she didn't know at the man as he rose. He came to her. Are you all right? The man asked in English. Mary belatedly realized she was speaking to Stuart. Why hadn't she known that? She touched her head wondering if she had fallen. Her hair was still wet from her offering to the moon. It was then she noticed something heavy on her arm. She looked down at it. It was a very heavy bracelet that just fit her wrist. The inside was some ugly grey metal, but the outside looked to be pure gold. She held out her arm. 
take this off, she commanded. It's hurting me. I'm afraid I can't, said Stuart. It has to stay on for a few days. No, she said sharply. It hurts me. It's hurting my arm. How can that be? He asked gently. He took her arm, slipped a finger between the bracelet and her skin. She noted his touch was dry, firm, and impersonal. She found that somehow both welcome and infuriating. It's loose, he asked her. How can it hurt you? She looked at the ornament and found herself consumed with hatred for it. It might not be too tight, but somehow it was hurting her. I don't like it, she said at last. You should rest, Stuart said. You've had a long day. She raised her hand to silence him. How dare he speak to her so? As if she were a child. She rose from the bed and saw the man-servants draw even farther away. He did not move. I wish to leave this place, she said. She walked toward him. She lifted her eyes to meet his, raised her arms to pull his head down to hers, and when their lips met, she opened her mouth. She felt him respond, felt him start to deepen the kiss and his arms came around her naked body. She would seduce him away from her brother. He would serve her as he should. Abruptly he stepped back and drew a deep breath. Mary? Are you feeling well? He asked. I think you may have a concussion. Mary stared at him. Did she have a concussion? How had she hit her head? Had she just kissed Stuart? Had she made him kiss her? I want to get dressed, she said. She was feeling dizzy and a little ill. Your bag is in the bathroom, Stuart said. He gestured to an open door on the other side of the bed. Entering the modern bathroom, much smaller than the ceremonial bath she had been in twice, she found her bag. In a few minutes she was dressed, the clothes sliding rough and unwelcome over her skin. She emerged from the bathroom and everyone was gone. She walked from the bed to the door and she opened it. She was in the long hall. Time seemed to move in spurts and starts. It jumped from moment to moment, carrying her along. She looked at the door that led to the underground cathedral. There was no way out that way, was there? No, she remembered, it was gone. She turned toward the long staircase that led down to the great hall she remembered from a lifetime ago. As she came down the stairs, she heard voices. She gravitated toward them. Double doors from the great room opened onto a formal dining room. She entered and saw food. It was a large buffet, all kinds of exceptional dishes displayed on silver platters. There were dozens of men and all were talking with great animation. No one noticed her at first, but then one by one they saw her. Movement and speech slowed, stopped, and then silence flooded the room. One by one they knelt, heads down. Mary turned wondering if she could exit through the garage. Are you hungry? Stuart asked as he approached. We have food. Then he was beside her, his hand on her elbow, guiding her to the long table. The men in the room raised their heads to watch him, then with his nod they stood. Still they were silent, drawing away from her as if she were royalty and they dare not touch her. She could feel them looking at her, felt them wanting her, found herself scanning their faces, looking for one who would yield. Stuart handed her a plate. It was filled with biscuits, cheese, fruit and chicken. She took it, realizing she was starving again. When had she last eaten? Sometime this afternoon? It might have been days ago. Stuart guided her over to one of the men. I think you remember Serge from last time, he said. I was telling him about your masks. He said he might like to see them. He owns several art galleries. 
Mary looked up at Serge, felt his heart beating like a rabbit's. With her free hand she reached out to touch his arm, to calm him, then felt him respond as any man would. I make masks, she said. I sent out dozens today. I wish I had seen them, said Serge with real regret and in a thick Russian accent. His blue eyes were piercing as he looked down into hers. You must let me see them someday. I collect art. I shall gift you one, she said regally. Then she turned away, tired of him. Please eat, said Stuart. You are hungry. She looked at the plate, took some of the cheese, put it on a biscuit, and lifted it to her mouth. Eating felt like something she'd never done before. She was thirsty. She saw pools of silver wine and crystal glasses on one end of the table. She moved toward them and picked one up. Stuart lifted it away before she could have a sip. You aren't feeling well, he said. I think you will find water is best. She nodded, reaching out to touch his arm. She could feel his strong heart beating in time to hers, thudding in the firm cage of his chest like a hammer against an iron anvil. This one was different. His father's son. She put the plate down, looked at him. She held out her arm and pointed at the bracelet. I want this off now. I am sorry that I can't take it off, said Stuart. No one here can. I want to go home, she said. I think you should stay, once again the Russian was daring to speak to her. She turned to look at him. She could kill that one as a lesson to the rest. They all needed a lesson. They needed to learn. Let's go, said Stuart, taking her arm. I think you would be better off at home. He led her out of the room, down the steps to the garage, out into the night air. He helped her into the car, fastening her seat belt. James appeared, her overnight bag in his hand. She heard them speak, then Stuart was in the car. Why don't you tell me about David, said Stuart as he started the engine. How did you meet? They drove out of the garage into the moonlight and she looked into the sky to see her silver chariot fleeing. She looked down at the thing on her arm. It was now all grey, a hard ring of imprisonment. David? prompted Stuart. You met him in school I think you said. At university. Recording and Story Copyright 2020 by Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved. Music created by D. Kurtzman and licensed from Pond5. Find more great stories at audioiron.com.